in a, in a true coaching relationship, um, you're not a dictator. You're not the person who tells them what their goals are, what their life should be, what their values are. Um, but rather you help them see their blind spots. And the analogy I like to use is that you're not the captain of the ship. You're the navigator. Welcome to the Barben Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your guest host, Jake Boley, and this podcast is presented by Barben.com. Today, I'm talking to Eric Helms, PhD, double master's holder, CSCS, and the current chief science officer of 3DMJ. Eric is also a part of MASS, a monthly research review for strength and physique athletes and coaches. He's published handfuls of peer-reviewed studies on exercise and nutrition and continues to push the boundaries for how we understand the human body. And in addition to his impressive research background, Eric has also coached hundreds of athletes and has dabbled in nearly every strength sport himself. And mind you, this is only really breaking the surface of all of his accomplishments. In today's episode, I talked to Eric about a variety of topics, including best hypertrophy practices, how to use RPE in a variety of ways, and much, much more. Seriously, this episode is packed with a ton of knowledge bombs. As always, we're incredibly thankful that you listen to this podcast, so if you haven't already, be sure to leave a rating and review of the Barbin Podcast in your app of choice. Every month, we give away a box full of Barbin swag to one of our listeners who leaves a rating and review. All right. So I guess to start this podcast, man, I would love to get a little bit more on your background, your origin. Like who is Eric Helms? And this is for all of the listeners out there who may not be as familiar with yourself. For sure. Well, first, let me just say honor to be here. Thank you for the opportunity uh, and, and really love what you guys are doing at Barbend. Um, as far as who I am, I'm just a, a dude who really loves the lifting. And um, I tend to have a kind of all in personality nature. This goes back to when I was a little kid. If I was playing a video game, uh, I would miss meals playing it. It'd be the only video game I'd play and I'd play it until I won. Uh, when I was reading books, I would find every spare moment and just dive into it. Imagine the, the, the characters, if I'm reading a fictional book when I'm you know, in school or something like that. So when the iron bug bit me back in 04, uh, it became a career change. It became an intellectual pursuit. Uh, it became something I competed in and still competed in as an athlete. Uh, and it became my vocation, eventually starting 3D Muscle Journey in 2009. Uh, and my vocation in many other ways now is kind of a science communicator um, and really has become something that, that gives me a lot of meaning in life. So uh, fast forward to today, I've uh, competed in uh, 17 powerlifting meets, three Olympic weightlifting meets, uh, two strongman competitions and 13 uh, natural bodybuilding competitions. Um, and we started 3D Muscle Journey, our, uh, our company where our goal was to support the drug-free lifting community and provide evidence-based information, coaching, uh, and can content to the community back in 09. We just had our 10-year anniversary. Uh, that's with myself, Alberto Nunez, Andrea Valdez, uh, Brad Lemus, and Jeff Alberts. Um, and I also do a, a fair bit of science communication. So I uh, pursued uh, strength sport and physique sport intellectually. So I've got my PhD in strength and conditioning that I got in 2017 uh, from the Auckland University of Technology here where I live in New Zealand. Um, before that, I did a master's in sports nutrition 
and a second master's in exercise science. Um, I've had pretty much every certification under the sun as far as nutrition, personal training and strength conditioning. And I was a personal trainer from 2005 till about 2011 before I moved out to New Zealand to, uh, to do my, my graduate work and to pursue the whole internet entrepreneurial thing full time. So that's pretty much me. I've written books now. I'm part of the monthly applications and strength sport research review. And I also co-host a podcast with Omar Isif. So I do a lot of stuff, but it's all related to, to bending the bar. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. You're a jack of all trades. Um, that's crazy with your school background and whatnot, but also I kind of want to circle back to what you first said before diving into everything you've done, but where do you think that all in kind of mindset developed from? Do you have an idea? I think some of it's just part of my, uh, just, just the, the, the traits of, of who Eric Helms is. Um, that's been there since, man, I, I can think back to being single digit ages and that being the case. Like I remember, um, we would go to on the weekend, we drive up to my uncle's house and my cousins were two and four years older than me. I guess they're still two and four years older than me. Um, but like if we would play a board game, uh, and I liked it. That's all I wanted to do. So like most normal people would play a, you know, a game or two of the board game, get bored and, you know, want to eat lunch and then go play basketball. But for me, I was like, let's go round three, you know, uh, constantly. And, uh, it's pretty annoying kid for others around me, but that's, that's really just kind of how I am. Um, I tend to have a very, uh, I don't know if obsessive is the right word. I guess if it's, if unchecked, it can definitely become obsessive. Um, which I think, is kind of a double-edged sword. Uh, I think most bodybuilders, athletes, academics, and people who do one thing and dive very deep into it, um, that is a very useful skill. But on the other side of it, uh, it can lead to burnout, um, you know, harm relationships, uh, have be just a less holistic human, uh, make you selfish, et cetera. So ironically, um, you mentioned me as it's kind of a jack of all trades. That's something that has been a, a learned trait. The natural thing for me is to dive all into something and to have a little more balance, to be a little more holistic uh, and to see the bigger picture uh, has been something that uh, has been kind of the biggest lesson that I'm trying to bring to uh, my fellow bros and sisters in the iron <laughs> game and uh, kind of a cornerstone of what we do at 3DMJ. And, and we find it, you know, it makes for athletes who can stay in the game longer instead of burning out or getting injured or, or, or having some un, unfortunate consequence uh, of the, uh, of their dedication, desire, and discipline. Gotcha. And I guess to kind of talk on all of that. So it sounds like as you've grown as a coach and just grown in the field itself, you have kind of learned how to take a step back and realize and kind of conceptualize that, Hey, whoa, I'm going too hard into this. I need to take a step back, kind of realign my focus and kind of maybe, almost pull back from diving so into something. How did you kind of learn that, I guess, and experience that? Was it like a moment in your life when you were like, holy crap, like I need to take a step back and work on this? Or was it through maybe a mentor explaining something to you and so forth? Man, a little bit of all of that. I, I think, um, you know, I'm fortunate. I come from a family uh, that, that at least on my mom's side values, um, psychology, uh, emotional openness, things like that, good communication. So I think had I been raised in a maybe a more goal-oriented kind of hard line, uh, maybe more traditional 
kind of role for 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 a male uh, kind of uh, approach to to life. I could see it going really bad. Like if I was raised by a you know an obsessive father who wanted me to be a sports hero, um, I probably would be a very unhappy person at this stage in my life. Um, but I had this kind of background uh, safety net, if you will, of support and a perspective on life. I think that's a big part of it. So my first mentors were. Uh, you know, some, some of my family members and some of this, the way I was, I was brought up, which I'm very grateful for. Um, beyond that, I think um, failure was, it was a great teacher for me. So when I first got into um, bodybuilding, my first season in 07, um, my wife basically gave me an ultimatum afterward and said, you know, this isn't what I signed up for. And I want to support you and what you love to do. But however it happened, it can't keep happening like that. Um, and it made me realize just how much uh, of, of, of an obsessive kind of selfish person I was and how I closed off everything. Uh, I remember specifically like spending all of my free time reading about bodybuilding. Even when I w- was sitting there watching a movie uh, on, on Netflix with my wife, I'd get up and kind of half watch while being on the computer. And this isn't even one of those easier things to do back in 07, I didn't have like Instagram on my phone. I couldn't just kind of slyly do it, which seems to be much more socially acceptable now to be on your phone while you're doing something else. I actually went over, turned on the computer and got on the forums and started reading things while we were, you know, watching Netflix. And for some reason in my brain, that was acceptable behavior. Um, So, you know, getting kind of that, (laughs) that pushback from, 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 from people who I care about deeply and who care about me uh, helped. And uh, then, in 09, when I tried to do it the quote-unquote right way, or at least better, uh, that's when I met Jeff Alberts. That's when uh, Alberto Nunez, Nunez, myself, and Brad all got together, and we kind of had this shared vision. Um, and it was really Jeff who was the catalyst, you know, before 3D Muscle Journey became the, you know, company that it is now. Um, and in kind of movement, it was a, uh, a blog that, that he had and kind of the whole premise and the baseline of it was him returning to the sport after being burned out and not competing for about three seasons uh, with the goal of, of enjoying the process and placing the journey over the end destination. And ironically, after him competing for, um, you know, since he was 23 now in his late thirties, uh, that this is the time he won two natural pro cards and, uh, and had his most successful season when he was less focused on winning. So I think he was probably the first leader for me in that way, both by example and then also philosophically when I got to talk to him, which really gave a little more, um, I guess you could say, direction to the kind of realization I had in my prior season in 07. Gotcha. And I know you work with a ton of athletes and I can see like, I think there's always that level for strength athletes, especially those who are super hardcore of going all in, similar to what you just described. So when you're working with athletes that you see similar trends in the personality trait of like going all in or maybe like neglecting things that they shouldn't be on a daily basis, what are some tips and kind of feedback you give them to kind of combat it to not, I don't want to say go down the same route you did, but kind of maybe avoid it or go about it in a better way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do know exactly what you're saying. And it's a huge part of coaching. Um, And I think the first thing that I started to realize is that you can't have a realization for someone else. Um, And you, you you can only meet someone where they're at. And in a, in a true coaching relationship, um, you're not a dictator. You're not the person who tells them what their goals are, what their life should be, 
what their values are, um, but rather you help them see their blind spots. And the analogy I like to use is that you're not the captain of the ship, you're the navigator. You know, and a navigator is has a different set of skills than the captain, has knows the best way to get from point A to point B, but in the end is not the person who makes the calls. And that is, you know, the support role of, of a coach is acting as the navigator. Maybe sometimes being a little more um, helpful or, or more constant in the feedback or more directed or more willing to step up and, and help, say, a quote-unquote young captain versus a more experienced captain. But in the end, the client is the one in charge. And I think a mistake I initially made was to try to have that realization for the client. Um, and if they're just simply not in the same place in life that I was or hadn't been through the same experiences, that's more often than not going to fall on deaf ears. Um, so typically, I think when you're dealing with an athlete who is in that frame of mind or they might go down that path, it's because they're trying to perform at their best. Uh, they see uh, an intense focus on their goal, um, sacrificing other things in their life to quote unquote win. And uh, the idea of having this, uh, you know, absolute single-minded mentality being a beneficial thing for their performance. And I think if you can speak the language of performance first, uh, that's how you get your foot in the door and you get them to actually see their blind spots. So the, the big myth is that being single-mindedly focused and all in, quote unquote, on your sport and some of the kind of traditional ways we see that in media or we hear it talked about. Uh, is actually better for performance. And I think that's largely a myth, especially in something like bodybuilding, where it's not like you can uh, compartmentalize that effort into when you're at practice or in training. Um, you know, bodybuilding is something that follows you 24-7, especially during contest prep. And the, you know, every time you step into the kitchen or, or every time you step into the gym, uh, there, there's, there's an opportunity to see it as something related to bodybuilding. Um, be, so, so that can become a very, very obsessive 24-7 focus, uh, which I think is actually counterproductive in many cases and leads to burnout. Um, you know, you, you see a much higher prevalence of disordered eating patterns, body image issues, uh, and uh, general psychological pathologies in, in athletes, um, especially in bodybuilders. And uh, that's obviously counterproductive to long-term performance. So the way I get my foot in the door is to I, I help them see how you know, sabotaging their relationships or, um, you know, having their boss get mad at them or being really, really obsessed about something that they can't actually change is actually counterproductive. And the full, you know, paralysis by analysis is a very common thing or to simply overtraining, doing too much, trying to stay too lean, um, removing the enjoyment, uh, aspect of food. It typically, goes poorly for humans. You know, every culture you can imagine has a, uh, an expression through food of the culture. You know, that's how we literally break bread. That's how we connect with our family, our friends, all holidays have something related to that. It, culture is expressed through food. Uh, familial bonds are expressed through food. So if you try to completely maximize nutrition from a very quantitative performance-based perspective, uh, you end up saying no to certain signals and certain practices, you know, so you lose connections with people and you lose your social support, uh, you lose meaning, uh, and that ends up hurting performance down the line. Or more simply, uh, you start ignoring internal cues of hunger and satiety and you try to eat by the numbers or by the meal plan. And that ends up actually being less optimal than someone who 
really has a, a finely refined sense of where their hunger and satiety levels are and who could better match portion sizes with their actual energy needs at a given time. Uh, or someone who tries to stay so lean in the off season because they think it's better for prep or better for their goals um, that that it harms their ability to gain muscle, et cetera, et cetera. There, there's so many instances where uh, that obsessive tendency, that, that, that desire to go all in, ends up actually short-circuiting long-term progress. So, so really the kind of old adage, bodybuilding is a marathon, not a sprint. I try to help athletes see, um, do you want to be competing in bodybuilding when, when you're in the Masters 2 class? Do you want to be improving for 20 years or do you want to have a good handful of, of seasons before you burn out and you're that guy who says, yeah, I used to do bodybuilding, but it's really unhealthy. And I think the same can be said for uh, you know, injuries and powerlifting uh, or just you know people who, who stop lifting once they're no longer competitive or competing. And I think most people especially in strength sports and physique sports, it's not like they played, you don't play powerlifting or play bodybuilding as a, as a freshman in high school, right? You get into it as someone in your, in your twenties or thirties uh, and you find it as an amateur sport, you're going to like high schools to compete initially or gyms. So it means you really care about it when you're, it becomes a, a very serious hobby in your adult life. And I think it's so tragic to see someone give it up because they went too hard and burned out uh, when it was something that, that they really found and, and desired as an adult. That means they actually had a lot of emotion towards just enjoying lifting. And I try to cultivate that so people don't lose it. I I feel that to the bones. I feel like almost everybody who gets into a strength sport has like that time frame when they're just so into it because it's new, it's exciting, they're progressing, and it's addicting in a lot of ways. So I love what you just said, and I think having a coach is the biggest way to success for a lot of athletes, but do you have any kind of, let's say like, let's call it like a mental checklist that people that might be listening that don't have a coach could maybe just kind of ask themselves and inquire of themselves objectively if they're maybe going down a route of potential burnout and maybe they're not seeing the full big picture just yet. Do you have any tips on maybe self-recognizing that? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do. I think, um, one of the best tools for people who are quote unquote self-coached is to really go through the process of coaching yourself. Uh, so for example, uh, one of the main benefits of having a coach is having that emotional distance. You know, this is the same reason why, you know, doctors aren't supposed to operate on their family uh, or, you know, lawyers aren't supposed to represent people they're close to uh, that whole conflict of interest. Um, and that comes down to having a bias. You know, when, when you have a strong emotional bias because you care about someone, you have a prior existing relationship, that can affect your ability to be objective and make the right call in the heat of the moment uh, when it's very important, like when someone is on trial or, or needs heart surgery, et cetera. Uh, and who are you more emotionally close to than yourself? So it's very difficult to coach yourself. And I, I you know, I've had people who, uh, who, who state because they're trainers that, no, no, I do my own training or I do my own prep. And they make terrible errors that they would never do if they were actually coaching someone else. So oftentimes it's not a, a knowledge issue, but it's a lack of perspective. It's not being able to see your own blind spots. That's why they're called blind spots. So one of the things you can do to counteract that to at least some degree is to really formalize the process to where you are like your own client. So for example, you can send yourself a report, you know, Cliff Wilson, a really great coach who I respect a lot in the uh, in the bodybuilding scene. He actually sends himself a report and an email and reads it and puts himself in the same mindset he does with his clients. Looks at his pictures, 
uh, reads the report, looks at the training and assesses, you know, the volume, the rate of fat loss, the pictures, the posing and responds to that email as though it's his own client. I don't think you need to go to that uh, degree of kind of artificiality, but you do want that same mindset. And you really want to think of kind of taking your objective data and also your subjective report and then externalizing it, writing it down, logging it, recording a video or something, and then viewing it. Um, you know, ironically, here's a good example. Sometimes when you look in the mirror, you might see one thing or focus on something negative, but then just seeing pictures of yourself, it can give you a very different perspective. You know, I, I experienced this during my last contest season. I was sending regular video updates to Alberto Nunez, who was kind of uh, handling my prep and being my, my external guidance to my own, you know, my own thoughts to make sure I didn't have blind spots getting in my way. But when I got my stage pictures back from my first show, I was like, wow, is that me? Like, I can't believe it. That's awesome. And because uh, it'd been eight years since I'd been on stage and I just hadn't been able to see the progress by looking at, you know, regular off-season pictures or looking in the mirror every morning and then sending, you know, weekly updates. But when I had that moment to objectively sit back and look at stage pictures that weren't something that I was assessing on a regular basis, I was actually able to see it in a different light. So kind of leveraging, leveraging that same uh, perspective is really helpful. I think that's one thing. Another thing that I think is really useful so athletes don't forget why they got into lifting in the first place um, is to focus on the process. And there's actually research showing that focusing on the day-to-day process of lifting uh, or executing a plan is more likely to help you succeed in your goal than being always focused on the end outcome. Um, and there's there's a lot of data on just human motivation and what keeps us ticking that when once you start rewarding a behavior, you get more focused on the reward. And really quickly, I'll talk about this, this cool study, kind of cool, kind of fucked up, uh, pardon my French, uh, study from back in the back in the day where they took preschoolers who were drawing and, and they were just, you know, in, in a preschool, they spent their time drawing and researchers came in. And one group, they just observed, and they watched whether they kept drawing over a certain period of time. Another group, they told them, hey, now you're in a competition. Whoever draws the most is going to get gold stars. And then the third group, uh, they gave them gold stars, but they didn't tell them they're in the competition. And they looked at the amount of the preschoolers who stayed drawing or stopped drawing once the experiment was over. And in the group that was just observed, you know, they had a given amount of people who just stopped drawing. You know, you're, you're young, you decide to draw, maybe you find out that's not what you like to do and you'd rather play with Legos. So there's a certain dropout rate they compared to the two groups to. And in the group that was not given notice that they were in a, in a, in a competition but were just given gold stars at the end, they had a similar dropout rate. But in the group that was told, hey, now you're in a competition and the more you draw, you'll, you'll, the more likely you get this reward, they had a much higher dropout rate because now they were not drawing for fun, but they were drawing to get the, the, the gold star. And I think that's something that a lot of competitors can relate to is that they, they lose a certain level of enjoyment with their training when now they're chasing you know, a trophy or a specific number on their squat or bench or you know, uh, winning a title or getting a pro card, et cetera. So keeping that focus on the process versus the end goal, um, staying grateful. I think a gratitude journal is really, really valuable just so you can uh, appreciate what you have instead of thinking about what you don't have yet. Uh, and then also uh, getting that, that, that separation. So you, when you really do coach yourself uh, of actually kind of externalizing those variables, so you can assess them more objectively. Those are, are three things I'd really recommend. Awesome. Yeah, I was going to ask you, 
actually how you like to stoke back up the fun when you might be losing it. But it sounds like those are awesome options for a lot of clients out there and athletes at that. So I want to kind of shift gears and dive a little bit more into your research background and ask you about some topics that I'm super curious about your thoughts on. But before we dive into some of those bigger topics, um, in college for your PhD, you studied and dove into RPE and powerlifting, correct? That's right. Yeah. So for my, uh, I did a master's thesis and also my PhD research. I focused much more on manipulation of uh, protein and macronutrients during uh, dieting and strength athletes for my master's and my PhD. I specifically looked at auto-regulating powerlifting training uh, using the RPE scale that was uh, developed by Mike T based on kind of repetitions remaining at the end of a set. Um, so my question there is since your research, have you shifted gears at all or learned better ways to apply RPE in training, whether it be for powerlifting specifically or other strength athletes? Like, I just want to hear your thoughts on RPE, how you like to apply it and how your view of it and a concept of it has changed over time, if it has. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's it's evolved greatly over time, and um, I see it as very much as a tool, and it's something. And a tool can be used for a lot of different purposes. Obviously, there are some things you just wouldn't use a certain tool for. Like if you have, you know, a screw, you wouldn't want to use a hammer to nail it in the wall. Um, so I think people tend to look at RPE probably in too narrow of terms. Um, so, for example, people typically either prescribe load using a percentage of 1RM or RPE. But I really like to use them in conjunction. Um, so for example, uh, you can give someone three by eight at 70%. Uh, and that's typically something that most people can do for 12 to 15 reps. So it's a, you know, moderately heavy, depending on the exercise, of course, moderately heavy, but, but, you know, average load, something you, you, you can do without, without getting too close to failure. Or you could prescribe someone, you know, three by eight at a six to eight RPE, meaning you should have you know, two to four reps left in the tank at the completion of each set. Um, however, there's, there's a lot of individual variation. So we did a study uh, that was at, at a Dr. Mike Zerdos' lab at FAU where we had people go to a 1RM and then we used uh, trash bags to cover the weight. And then we put 70% of weight on the bar and we had people go all the way to failure. And they called out RPE ratings uh, across the course of that set. So at the top of each squat, once they thought they were at uh, a seven, uh, and a nine RPE, uh, they would call it out and also a five RPE as well. And we found that the more reps they performed in a set, the less accurate they were at lower RPEs so because, you know, high rep squats just really, really suck, you know, the metabolic fatigue, total cardiovascular stress, um, it, it gets pretty high and it makes you think you've got less in the tank than you do. But when you've got a room full of students motivating you and yelling at you to go all the way to failure, once you're actually truly at only one rep away from failure, you can tell. So the five and a seven RPE were way less accurate for high rep squats and a nine RPE uh, was, was pretty accurate no matter how many reps you did. But the cool side outcome of the study that we didn't even set out to, to investigate was just the great range of reps that you might see at 70%. There were some people who only got six reps at 70% of 1RM and there were some people who got well into the 20s. So that means that percentage 1RM yeah, the average value of say, you know, 12 to 15 reps at 70% might, you know, meet the, the largest part of the bell curve. But if you go, out, go outside to some of the outlier people, there are some people who can't get eight reps at 70%. And there's some people who can really get like 24, you know, it's only one third of the potential reps they could get. So a lot of people don't know when they first start using RPE, what's an appropriate 
load to put on the bar. Like you tell them, Hey, I want you to do eight reps at a, you know, six RPE. Um, you know, if they're really experienced and they've been in the gym and they have an extensive background and have a logbook to look at, they could probably put the right weight on the bar. But if they're relatively new to RPE or maybe they haven't done high rep training or something like that, or it's a new exercise for them, um, giving them a percentage can, can get them in the ballpark and then they can adjust after that. So for example, if, uh, you prescribe three by eight at 70%, Oh, and by the way, that should be between the six to eight RPE. You know what to put on the bar for that very first set. And if you are one of those people who skews to the left of the right of the bell curve, and it's really, really hard, and you you know put up like a ten RPE and barely complete that eighth rep, you know to drop the load on the second set pretty substantially. Likewise, if that eighth rep flies up and you're going, man, I, I could have done twice as many reps. You know to scale the weight up on the next set. So they can be used in conjunction to give someone a starting point and then to adjust afterwards. Um, that, that's one thing that I don't think I realized when I went on, went into the, uh, the research originally, I saw them as kind of two opposing paradigms of thought when I think they actually go quite nicely. Uh, another thing that I, I think is important to realize is that RPE doesn't have to be a prescriptive tool. Um, it can be very much just a monitoring tool, you know, uh, as you get more and more advanced as a lifter, um, you know, putting measurable poundage on the bar, you know, mesocycle to mesocycle becomes quite difficult. I mean, if you could truly add five pounds to a lift every four week mesocycle, you could think about that, that that would be, you know, there's 52 weeks in a year, you know, and if every four weeks you're adding five pounds, that that's a lot of weight to add. That's like, I think if I did my math right, 65 pounds that you'd add to a lift in a year, that's simply not going to happen at a certain point. You know, once you've gotten to say, you know, 90%, 95% of your possible strength, you might only get half of that at best in a year. Or sometimes at a high level, you're only adding five to 10 pounds to a lift in an entire year. So how do you gauge progress? How do you assess the efficacy of a program? And being able to see that, hey, I did a single at, you know, 455 pounds. And last time it was a seven RPE. And this time it's a 6.5 RPE. That's the kind of thing where if you were not aware of how to track RP and if you weren't accurate with it, you wouldn't have that tool to gauge progress. And I think um, having the ability just to kind of look at your RPEs, even if you're programming with percentages, uh, just to kind of keep your, your finger on the proverbial pulse of your strength progress allows you to see those kind of uh, peaks and valleys of strength progression. And if you step back far enough, you can see whether or not it's overall trending upward. Uh, but if you're looking just purely at the numbers, sometimes you will... Uh, you'll, you'll go a longer period before being able to assess whether or not something's working. So those are two areas that I, I can specifically think of now as you bring it up that I've, I've, uh, I've thought about differently over the years. Um, but man, there's so many ways to use RPE. You can use it to auto-regulate volume. You can use it to do a tester single to see how ready you are to train and maybe adjust to what you decide to do on that day. Uh, you can use it as a progression tool. You know? So, so lot, lots, of, lots of ways to use the proverbial hammer. Yeah, I, I love that. Actually, I was gonna. I have so many other questions that kind of you touched upon, but I want to circle back about something you said in that study because I remember reading that study and it like I thought it was so interesting how you guys went about performing it. And I want to ask you about the huge variance in reps at different RPEs for individuals. Why do mm. you think that might be? Do you think it's previous training experience, training age? Does it have to do with the muscle fiber composition people have? Do you have any idea or speculation into that? rationale? Probably all of that and a few other things. So um, one thing that I always think is really interesting, especially um, when you start to get to the extreme ends of it, is that just because uh, percentage 1RM 
is the same relative effort on, on paper. When you deal with people who are much different body sizes and much different strength levels, it starts to be a little different. Like, sure, at, at say 90% of 1RM, regardless of whether you're 100 pounds or whether you're a 300-pound competitor, whether you've been training for a year or 15 years, you're probably going to get two to four reps, right? Um, however, once you start to get further and further from that percentage of 1RM, all these other factors start to come into play and other things can impact uh, whether or not you're going to fatigue earlier or later. One thing to consider is that even if you take the same person, like I remember when I first stepped into the gym and I started squatting, I remember just having one plate on my back and being able to do, you know, 10 to 15 reps. And that was really, really hard. Um, that was very fatiguing. Um, and that was the most reps I could do. Now, if you ask me, what can I do for 10 to 15 reps? We're looking at two to three times that load, you know, in absolute terms. And my body weight has only gone up by, say, 20, 30 pounds. So there's not necessarily a linear scaling between the, the load you can lift and your body. So the amount of calories you're actually actually expending scales really well with the total volume load. So sets times reps times load. So if we do three by 10 at 135 versus three by 10 at 365, my God, you know, that that's way more calories burned. And that is something that's going to impact your, your, your body. You know, you still have to deal with that, that oxygen debt. You still have to deal with that metabolic stress. So as you get stronger and stronger and stronger, higher reps actually become disproportionately fatiguing. Um, and one thing we saw in, in some of this, in, in these studies was that certain things correlated with how many reps someone would get. So heavier people uh, typically wouldn't get as many reps. That might be because they had more absolute strength and that nonlinear scaling with body weight to, to strength to, to the number of calories burned per rep. Uh, that could be with maybe higher levels of body fat or maybe less cardiovascular conditioning. Um, you know, in, in some of the research I did, I had some people who competed in CrossFit and powerlifting. And although it wasn't enough for me to confidently state this is why, the CrossFit competitors could do a lot of reps and recover really well between sets. And some of the heavier powerlifters really struggled even when we had like a three-minute rest period in some of the research I did, which is kind of a standard thing. But when you're pushing near failure with really heavy weights, um, you know, that's a lot of calories burned. And you still have to actually recover metabolically to do it again. So I think that's a component of, of it. I do think perhaps fiber type could come into play. Um, I'm not very confident on that because I think we would we'd need to actually get some biopsies done and, and make some correlations there. Um, I think uh, sex can, can, can have potentially have an impact. Um, there is some data to suggest uh, women might recover better between sets and have more anaerobic endurance at, at a lower percentage of 1RM and definitely training age. Um, when you are at a lower training age, you can't actually express your true maximal strength. Um, one of the studies we did, the very first study we did actually showed that novice squatters recorded a higher velocity at 1RM than experienced squatters. And this is not to say that they could squat heavy loads faster. It just means that when you put a truly heavy load, which should force them to lift it slowly on their back, they couldn't maintain form and grind through it. While if you look at a very experienced lifter, like for example, if you live stream, uh, you know, the uh, USAPL nationals and you watch the, the best lifters, or if you live stream uh, IPF worlds, you'll see that their first, second and third attempts look very similar, but if they make it, it's just slower. They can, they can maintain that force production uh, as they approach their limit strength. And so long as they don't actually 
stop and are unable to overcome the momentum, they'll complete the lift. But if you have ever been a trainer and you work with a very novice person, the heavier the load gets, the more their form breaks down, the, the less self-efficacy they have, the more wonky they look, and they might not be able to, to maintain that, that uh, motor pattern under heavier load. So the heaviest weight they can do for a 1RM is not their actual 1RM per se. It's not a, an accurate representation of, of their true force expression. But at a lower absolute lows, they may be able to do more reps and actually reach uh, closer to true muscular failure. So in an inexperienced lifter, it may appear that they can do more reps at a higher percentage than 1RM, but it's just that their 1RM is deflated relative to what it actually could be. So all of those factors go into it and, and probably have some impact on uh, whether or not someone can do a lot of reps or fewer reps uh, at, at, a, at a given percentage of 1RM. But certainly the closer to a 1RM you get, the less that variance is. So if we're talking, say, 85% and higher, you're going to see a much narrower uh, range of repetition someone could do. If you're talking 80% or lower, then, man, you're, you could have some pretty disparate numbers on the extreme ends. Gotcha. And something something you just said in there kind of struck my attention, and it's on the concept of sex and the differences in how RPEs might look, especially at heavier loads. And I know you kind of suggested that, women generally have a better ability to recover in between maybe more higher volume sets. But do you think, and this is what at least I've seen and what other coaches have talked about is that women athletes will tend to fail at a much quicker rate when it gets to like super high intensities. Right? So my question is, is at high intensities like that, do you see any trends with women and men when it comes to just true 10 RPEs and then sevens and kind of what those look like. Does that, that, did I word that correctly? Hopefully. Yeah. You know, when I've looked at very, very high level lifters, some of these, some of these trends are, are much less obvious. I think one thing I like to tell people is yes, there are sex differences. Like for example, if you were to visualize uh, two bars that are vertically placed above each other, um, the, the normal, bar of, of, of responses among female lifters and male lifters uh, might overlap, say, 60 to 70 percent. So there's a, you know, 20 to 30 percent difference on average. Um, but within women and within men, you can see much larger differences uh, than, than the average difference between men and women. So I think the differences between individuals greatly uh, overlaps and exceeds the differences on average between the sexes. Um, so I've seen lots of women who can grind out very, very slow lifts once they're well-trained. Um, so sometimes I wonder if some of those, those observations you, you, you cited have more to do with uh, the training age uh, and that in general, just in our society, uh, not always, and it's changing certainly, uh, that, that women typically have less experience lifting uh, than, than some of the men do. One, one thing I've seen is that when you have a smaller population of people lifting, uh, you might have those outlier extreme performances. So, so for example, you might have a world-class female lifter, but they're just such a genetic freak that after one or two years of lifting, they're winning championships uh, for one, because they're a genetic freak. Uh, but for two, because there's not a huge depth of, of, of people to compare them against uh, while in the, uh, the, the male categories, when there's a greater number of, of people competing, you're going to see, uh, much more selection at the highest level where you have to not only be a genetic freak, you also have to be lifting for a while and really maximize that potential. So you'll see a relatively novice 
uh, high level performer. So, you know, we, we love to have these strength standards. Like, Hey, if you can squat X number of, uh, kilos or this multiplier of your body weight, you're now advanced. But the reality is like, if you ever listen to Andy Bolton, the first time he ever deadlift, he deadlifted 600 pounds. You know, was he an advanced lifter the very first time he lifted a weight? No, that's the first time he ever deadlifted. He just is that strong naturally. So I think it's important to remember that the first time someone touches a barbell or maybe a year into it, they could be a world-class performer, but it doesn't necessarily make them an advanced lifter, which means they might still be recording, uh, you know, a higher uh, velocity than you'd expect at 1RM or not have the ability to grind. So that might be what I think coaches are seeing anecdotally when looking at a uh, women versus men. But when you look at kind of the modern 2019 IPF uh, world champions, you see a lot less differences between the sexes in my experience. There's, there's women and men who can grind really, really well. And I think some of that gets washed away when you've got 10, 15 years under the bar. Totally. That's, a, that's awesome food for thought. Honestly, I didn't even think of it in that respect. So I appreciate you saying that because now I'm thinking about it from a whole different point of view. Um, in terms of our, in terms of RPE and re- auto regulation, do you think every level of lifter can find use in that protocol and tool? I think the tool should be used differently at different levels. Um, one thing that, that is pretty cool that we found some of the most recent studies that have come out of the collaborations uh, with, with FAU and AUT, myself and Dr. Zerdos, um, one of my current PhD students, uh, Colby Sousa, who, is, who did his master's under, under Mike Zerdos, um, he did a comparison. Uh, he was part of a, a group that did a comparison at 80% of 1RM on the squat bench and deadlift and train lifters and doing as many reps as you can and then assessing uh, when you were at those various RPE levels. And there was incredible precision on all three lifts. So trained lifters at a relatively high load, 80% of 1RM, are able to gauge how many reps in reserve they have extremely accurately, sometimes on average less than one rep off. And this is, again, that same method where at the top of a rep, you call out when you think you're at, say, you know, a 6 and a 9 RPE. Um, and that is really cool. Um, that means a trained lifter can use this with a lot of confidence that they're pretty much on point, especially if they have a background training to failure, if they've been using RPE for, for a number of months. It doesn't take much experience to get that done. And we see that more so training experience than, than experience with the RPE scale is important. Presumably, that means if you had a multiple years under the belt of lifting weights, you've done enough training to failure for you to know what one from failure, two from failure, three from failure might be. But we also have data showing that inexperienced lifters don't have that same ability. They might be two, three, four, five reps off uh, when they think they're they're one or two reps away from failure. Um, now that's still pretty accurate. You know, if you were to compare that against percentage one RM, or someone might be doing eight reps or twenty-five reps. I would still take the accuracy of an RPE for a novice lifter, but I would say, why not get accurate first? You know, so I think what I like to do with a a beginner lifter is not have them actually target certain RPEs or choose load with RPE, but rather give them a, you know, a conservative percentage based program, simply have them rate RPE. I think this generates a lot of lifter awareness, just having an idea in your head of what, how many more do I think I could have done? And then having some training where they do an AMRAP, you know, as many reps as possible or, or training to a 10 RPE here and there, especially on something like an accessory work where there's a low risk of, uh, of, of injury and, and it's not going to generate much fatigue. Uh, so building the skill of being able to rate RPE more accurately first before then prescribing load using RPE as an intermediate or advanced, I think is 
a natural progression for how to use RPE across different training ages. I love that. Do you have a kind of, let's say, baseline recommendation as to when you would transition, let's say, a novice lifter who's going for percentages and then rating them to start transitioning into implementing RPE a little bit more strategically as a tool for intensity-based training? Yeah, I, I think... I think for one, if, if you're a coach, you're going to get kind of a sense of when someone's ready, uh, when the rates, the ratings that they put in their logbook compare to the rating you would give them when you see video uh, or when their their AMRAPs are, are pretty close to what they, they had previously rated. You know, like if if you put what was previously their 5RM on the bar uh, and, you know, they it's supposed to be to, to, to failure. And they go to true failure, you watch the video and it is, and they're doing like 10 reps, you know, they're probably not very good at rating that last 5RM wasn't a 5RM. But if they're getting, you know, a rep or two off and you're thinking, oh, they probably got stronger as well. And they rated it as a 10, it looks like a 10, great, you know. Um, if they are constantly missing reps, um, which is actually rarer than you think, that's more of a an Instagram thing, you know, the, the classic grinder and then you go, yep, 6 RPE that's more about social approval than what actually happens in the gym when you're looking at videos, writing it down and all the data we have, people actually underrate RPEs, even though in social media, you kind of see the opposite, which I think is more just, you know, trying to look cool on camera. But anyway, so from a coaching perspective, you want to see your RPE start to line up with the RPEs of the lifter and get video feedback. Um, but as a general caveat, um, in the studies where we see really good ratings of RPE, like the, the ones I mentioned, uh, 80% of 1RM on the big three, we've got at least two years of training experience specifically using the lifts that are being rated. Uh, and I think that that's a pretty good uh, gauge. And I would say an anecdotal thing I would add to that is probably going through at least uh, two mesocycles of training with some training near to failure where you're actually rating RPE. So not only having, say, two years of training experience minimum with the lifts you're going to use RPE on, but then having used RPE just as something you're tracking rather than prescribing for a couple of mesocycles of training so you can really kind of learn the ropes and get a feel for it. And I think once you've got those two things in place, uh, you'll have pretty good precision to where it would be a useful tool. But just understanding that it is a skill. And I think sometimes we look to binarily black or white at should I use percentage one or MRPE? And I think that that's, that's probably not the way to look at it. It's not comparing two methods. You're comparing something you can actually get better at, you know? So, um, you know, Mike T gauging his RPE is going to be way better than the first time you do it. And it may not be something that that's worth comparing like uh, a well-experienced lifter who's played with RPE for a long time may be able to reap more benefits from it in terms of, you know, auto regulation, putting the right weight on the bar for the goal of the day, uh, because they really know how to use that tool. Well, gotcha. I want to ask one more question on RPE before we kind of shift gears and I ask you about the next topic, but my final question on this topic is you mentioned that you can apply RPE to different adaptations, right? So it can be used for other things than strength. So let's talk about like how you would apply it to volume and other variables in training and kind of some strategic ways that listeners can do so if they're kind of maybe, let's say, trying to think of a different way to push their performance outside of just strength and intensity focus. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's some cool stuff you can do with, with RPE to auto-regulate volume. Uh, so for example, you can use what I call an RPE stop, uh, which originally came from the idea of fatigue percentages, which Mike T uh, started in, in reactive training systems. So really simply, an RPE stop uh, can be used for 
an open-ended set. So for example, you put a fixed load on the bar and then you do as many reps as you can until you hit a, a target RPE. So you could say, hey, I'm going to put 70% on the bar. And then when I hit a seven RPE, I'm going to stop and I'll do a fixed number of sets. So that way you're auto-regulating the volume per set. Uh, another way to do it would be to do uh, an open-ended number of sets with a fixed number of reps. So for example, and this is what I like to call an RPE climb. Uh, so you can start out by doing, uh, say, eight reps um, with whatever results in a seven RPE. Okay. Uh, so that means you, you select the weight on the bar, you get pretty close, and you allow a certain amount of RPE climb. So this means that let's say you allow 1.5 RPE to accumulate. So that means you're going to stop once that same load for the same number of reps goes up 1.5 RPE points or higher. So let's just say to arbitrarily choose some numbers, you do 225, uh, you do your eight reps, it's a seven RPE. Uh, you rest your, your X number of minutes, but you actually keep that consistent. You do your second set, same load, same reps. You do eight reps with 225, and this time it's a seven and a half RPE. Okay, that makes sense. Cumulative fatigue set to set. You keep going and you do two more sets, and on that fourth set, you hit an 8.5 RPE. That's when you stop. That's 1.5 RPE points that have climbed from that initial seven RPE with the same load and the same number of reps. Now, this is a useful way to auto-regulate because if you think about it on a really, really crappy day, uh, maybe you didn't eat enough, maybe you're dieting, maybe you got poor sleep, but nonetheless, your set-to-set strength endurance or your ability to recover strength and do repeated expressions of force is poor that day. That's probably not a day you want to hammer that trait, right? If you were really, really bad at, at recovering your strength set-to-set and you force yourself going all the way to failure, maintaining load, or even doing like clusters to get somewhere you can bet you just dug a really deep hole of recovery because you're already in the hole a little bit. So it's probably not a good idea to just crush yourself with five sets of eight on a day when your body was really not ready for it or your mind wasn't. Um, on one of those days, your RPE might climb really quickly. You might That first set might go from a seven to an eight RPE and the next set goes to a nine, you're done. You only get three sets. Likewise, on a day when you're really fresh, you ate well, You know, glycogen storage is topped out, you, you took two, two scoops of your, your pre-workout. You're ready to do some work. You might get, you know, six sets. So it's kind of the idea that just like striking when the quote-unquote iron is hot with load, when you simply go, right, my goal today is a single at 8 RPE. I might be weak that day and put up a, a poor number compared to my max. Or, shit, I might get close to my previous 1RM, even though it's an 8 RPE. That's fantastic. You know, that tells me that my, my maximal strength is increasing or that I'm a little under-recovered. You can do the same thing with volume. Uh, and you can assess your volume capabilities and allow yourself to strike when the iron is hot, to, to, to let the, the, the leash out a little bit, if you will, and perform more volume when you're in a state to do so. Um, I will say, though, that when you're using this strategy, it does need to be within the context of some type of plan, maybe a periodized system. So you wouldn't want to allow yourself to do five or six sets if you felt great in the middle of a taper five weeks out, sorry, five days out from a competition, right? The goal is not to fatigue yourself with a lot of volume. So you might put a set cap of two or not use this strategy at all. Um, so there does, auto-regulation isn't necessarily a replacement for periodization. It's something that allows you to work within the confines of the goal. So for example, you might allow a higher RPE climb during a volume block and a lower RPE climb during an intensity block so that while you're still letting the leash out per se, you only let it out so much within the goals of the mesocycle. Gotcha. That's, that's really cool. I have 
I actually have never heard of an RPE climb, and that is something that I would like to play with eventually in my program. Um, For sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's kind of a term I just throw around because it makes sense, but it's basically the same concept as a fatigue percentage, where the original fatigue percentage, you would take weight off the bar and then wait till you got back to your original RPE, which is a similar strategy. I find it's just easier to explain if we keep the load the same and let the RPE go up a certain amount. So the way Mike T did this back in the day is he would use like a 3% reduction in load or a 5% reduction in load or a 7% reduction in load. You keep the reps the same. And then once you get back to the original RPE with a lower load, uh, then you've accomplished basically the same thing, just that you are uh, achieving lesser or fewer back offsets uh, based on how much you backed off from the original load. And therefore, the amount of cumulative fatigue would be uh, greater with a smaller percentage back off, you know, doing only 3% less. You know, if you go from 200 kilos to 194 kilos, that's only a 3% reduction in load. That's going to be almost the same RPE that first set. But if you drop 7%, it might take a few sets to, for it to feel as hard. So similar concept, but I think an easier way to explain it and apply it. Gotcha. That's really cool. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you about, I think, a topic that's gaining more and more traction due to social media these days, but that is effective reps and effective volume. And I would love to hear your thoughts on it and how you kind of view it, maybe apply it in your training and clients training. And yeah, I just want to hear your topics because I think with your diverse background and your experience, I'm really interested to see what you think on this topic. Yeah, effective reps is something that, uh, uh, as we say, Americans say, Borge Fagerli or Berge Fagerli uh, talked about a long time ago uh, when he discussed and, and kind of created a myo reps. It's something that Chris Beardsley uh, of the uh, Strength Conditioning Research Review has talked a fair bit about, uh, as well as other kind of people in, in the, the sphere of lifting. And the, ba- the basic idea is that... Um, certain reps are more stimulating specifically for hypertrophy, which has, of course, knock on effects on strength. You know, if, as you generate more size and you do recruit high threshold motor units, you're going to probably induce more strength gains. But this is primarily a discussion for hypertrophy uh, that basically it's only the last few reps in a set where you actually perceive the barbell or the dumbbell to be slowing down due to accumulative fatigue uh, that, that are actually creating a, a robust stimulus. So for example, let's say we're going back to that, that, that 12 to 15 reps with 70% of 1RM. Uh, the argument would be that only the last five reps or so where you actually start to see the barbell slow down rep to rep to rep as you approach failure are producing a close to maximal stimulus while most of the earlier reps are simply there to generate the fatigue to allow you to perform those quote-unquote effective reps. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, come about and has some utility, but also has some holes in the theory. So we used to say, like maybe five years or so ago, that, that volume load was a, a, a predictive factor of hypertrophy, that being sets times reps times load. But as we started to to look more at other factors, we saw that volume load only in certain conditions seemed to be predictive of hypertrophy. And indeed, a set of six and a set of 15 to failure, while the set of six being closer to a 1RM will be better for strength development, they're actually quite similar in terms of the stimulus for hypertrophy, even though one has about twice the volume load of the other. You know, if you were to do a set with your 15 RM, which is going to be lighter than a set with the load you use for your 6 RM, one is going to be about the twice volume load as the other. However, a 15 RM does not produce twice as much hypertrophy. 
In fact, they produce almost identical levels of hypertrophy. And that's because in the end, when you do a set to failure uh, that has enough reps in it to produce a sufficient time under tension, you're getting to the same point. And the way to think of this is that if you're going to do 15 reps, um, you're going to have different motor units getting cycled in to pick up the slack as other motor units and their the fibers they innervate are, are fatiguing. So as different muscle fibers are working towards pushing these reps of this 15 rep set uh, up and up and up and up and up, eventually they're going to fatigue and someone else has to come in and pick up the slack. So these high threshold motor units will get cycled in to continue that force production. And eventually they too will fatigue until everything is fatigued and you've effectively trained everything to its maximum capacity, having done 15 reps out of a total possible 15. Now, the same thing basically happens on a 6RM. We know from Henneman's size principle that if you lift a heavy enough load, everything is recruited. So essentially, our muscles recruit only the fibers they need to lift the load. And due to fatigue or lifting a really heavy load, that could mean more and more fibers are recruited. Um, so when you lift a very, very heavy load, all the way from your, your slowest twitch fibers all the way to your fastest twitch fibers are recruited almost immediately. So if you lift a six rep max, pretty much everything is recruited automatically. And then after those six reps are, 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 are done, everything has been effectively trained and a large amount of tension has been put on the muscles. Uh, and you'll notice that the first rep on a 6RM is pretty slow and then only gets slower from there. So whether you've done a 15RM or a 6RM, you're getting to the same place is essentially uh, the point. And while the entirety of that 6RM might be quote unquote effective reps, the argument would be that only once you start to see the barbell velocity slow in a 15RM, are you achieving effective reps? So what we know to be true from the research is that when you're comparing any load from say about 40% of 1RM uh, up to say your you know five or six RM, a set to failure is about equivalent to any other load for the, the, the stimulus for hypertrophy. It means if you take a set of, you know, a set of 30 to failure, you say you're 40% 1RM to true failure, which is hard to do because like the metabolic fatigue will confuse you as to when you're actually there, or you take a 6RM to failure, they'll have the same stimulus. Um, but the where, where it starts to fall apart is when we look at studies that are not to failure, sometimes we see similar hypertrophy, especially in trained lifters, that kind of throws some, some wrenches in the idea of effective reps. So the problem with the effective reps theory is that while it makes sense on paper and has solid theoretical uh, support, uh, there are enough studies now where the non-failure group might actually get more hypertrophy or there's no difference in hypertrophy between the two groups that it's probably a little more complicated than that. Uh, there are probably interactions between what is the prime mover, what's the secondary muscle group, not all the muscles are necessarily contributing the same amount, fatiguing at the same rate. Uh, advanced lifters also seem to be able to recruit high threshold motor units earlier in a set. Um, if you're lifting to maximum concentric velocity, that might also change things. That's another way to recruit uh, muscle fibers. And then you might induce fatigue a little earlier and get more growth out of that. Um, there probably is some effect of the total amount of work done. It's the, the, the effect of metabolic stress can't be discounted. So that might put, um, you know, higher rep sets on more equal footing than you'd expect. Um, and also you have to consider that if you're going really, really heavy and you can only get three reps, those are just three effective reps. You know, we have data to show that sets of two to four, four RRM, if you equate the number of sets, 
doesn't produce as much growth as sets of say eight to 12 RM. And that's simply because you're not spending enough time actually lifting. It's too heavy for you to complete a sufficient amount of time under tension to fatigue all those fibers. So there is a useful uh, way of looking at, at, at training when you talk about effective reps, but I don't think it's to the point where it's a model that predicts hypertrophy. We've seen studies go against that model enough times now that I'm not confident in it. But I think it is useful to, to think about maybe why um, hypertrophy can be equal between a low load and a high load set uh, to failure. And if you understand that you basically get to the same place, but through different means to recruit and train all those fibers, uh, that, that, that's where the utility kind of ends, in my opinion. Um, I've seen some very hard line positions with reps, or sorry, effective reps, where basically, hey, only the last five reps in a set to failure count. And either therefore you should be training with moderately heavy loads all the time. Uh, high reps are simply just unnecessarily fatiguing and burning a lot of calories. Um, or I've seen the position of basically you should always train to failure to ensure that you're getting the most effective reps each time and kind of forgetting the big picture of, of how much that might in induce disproportionate fatigue or risk injury or create burnout. Um, so I think useful paradigm probably doesn't accurately model hypertrophy in response to uh, how close to failure you go or the number of reps in a set or what RPE you train at. Um, in fact, in my PhD, the final study we did, uh, we took trained lifters doing the squat and the bench press. These are reasonably strong people. You know, by the end of the study, they were on average squatting close to 400 pounds, these males, uh, and benching well into the 200s. Um, one group trained with a percentage 1RM, the other group trained with RPE. And the percentage 1RM group gained strength at a faster rate uh, than the percentage 1RM progression. So they ended up training at roughly a 5 to 6 RPE throughout the whole study. And that means that they had 4 to 5 reps left in the tank throughout the whole study, which means that they almost did no effective reps if you use that kind of hardline position. While the other group started at a 5 RPE and trained all the way up to a 10 RPE by the end of the study. So they had on average about an 8 RPE meaning that they were getting, you know, at least three of those five effective reps on average throughout the study. So you'd expect to see no growth in one group and some growth in the other. But in fact, when you compared the muscle thickness changes in the pectoralis major and in the quadriceps, there was no significant difference between the two groups and the actual percentage changes and mean values were quite similar. So it doesn't always add up. And uh, I think I think that's where we need to probably look a little deeper into this model and not just base it off of uh, the, the observation that sets to failure at various different intensities produce hypertrophy. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that because I feel like with how social media can spin it, they almost make it black and white. And like you said, there's so many different levels, especially when you consider the different studies that have looked at this topic with the differences in training age and so forth. I feel like that's just, it can't be that clear cut, especially when it comes to hypertrophy and how people respond to certain intensities. So that was that was a fantastic analysis. Thank you. Uh, I, I I always appreciate it. Hopefully the listeners do too. Um, my, my pleasure, man. Last last topic for you. I promise, and then I'll I'll, I'll let you go about your day. But I want to ask you about sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. I want to ask mm. about your thoughts on it, and I want to ask you: Have you read the study by Hahn and colleagues? Right, I believe that's how you pronounce his name. Yeah, Cody Hahn. Doctor Hahn yeah. is is a Doctor Hahn. Yeah, I have read the study, and I think it's really really intriguing. Um, yeah. So like, I would, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. And if you think it's possible to train for sarcoplasmic hypertrophy alone, and if there's, do, if you think it's even possible to isolate that variable for maybe like a mesocycle or so forth. 
So the, the short answer is no, I don't think it's possible to train for it alone. Um, but that study and some other observations we, we've had over time, you know, Greg Knuckles actually has a great article on this uh, on strongerbyscience.com. I'd recommend you check it out. Um, would hint that certainly um, you can have training that's a little more biased towards that. Um, I think a analogy I like to use is that the myofibular growth, the actual uh, increase in the, the contractile tissue component, uh, your actin and myosin, um, that is kind of growth of the engine. While sarcoplasmic growth is kind of the, uh, the growth of the fuel tank, you know, if, if, we, if we use the analogy of our muscle being a car. Um, so if you do things that are very energetically demanding uh, of your muscle, especially at, at relatively high forces, um, it's going to have to do things to make you better at buffering, uh, to provide more fuel, uh, to, to be better at, at shuttling things, and to make the mitochondria more efficient so that you can actually produce those contractions to handle calcium better, et cetera, et cetera. Um, likewise, if you're putting really, really high tension on the muscle, it's going to need to have a larger engine, if you will, a, a larger muscle fiber to produce more contractile force, a greater amount of, you know, actin and myosin. And if you're producing, uh, just to take it another angle, if you're, if you're training it at long muscle lengths, and if you're, um, challenging its ability to, to rapidly shorten and then contract, uh, you know, the stress shortening cycle. And you can see adaptations to the Titan molecule, which is kind of like uh, an internal tendon, if you will, uh, that, that allows uh, passive force contribution to occur uh, intramuscularly. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if you, uh, sorry, training at long muscle lengths, that, that'll increase sarcomeres in series. It makes your, your muscle able to produce force at longer muscle lengths and change uh, that, that, that relationship between uh, length and tension. Uh, you can see changes in the connective tissue and the, uh, the, the, the fascia and the resting tonicity of muscle in response to the levels of forces, the, the, the length of, uh, of the muscle when it's trained and when it's producing forces. Whether you're doing more eccentric training, you're going to see more uh, hypertrophy in, in series, kind of in the length versus more muscle thickness changes in doing concentric training. So I think it's, it's really cool now that we're starting to dig into more specifics of uh, muscle fiber adaptations to different uh, training stimuli and the, the various adaptations that can occur because of that. Um, I think there wasn't too long ago, it's maybe say 2010 or so, where you could have probably found me on some message board poo-pooing the idea of, uh, of non-uniform regional hypertrophy, uh, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, or anything besides kind of the notion of basically muscles just getting bigger or smaller. Uh, and how a bigger muscle is a stronger muscle, and it's that simple. But now we know that there's a lot that goes into the global hypertrophy we see. You know, you can produce equal hypertrophy uh, doing really high reps with low rest periods, uh, and then, you know, heavy training. And, and obviously, we know that on average, a powerlifter is going to be stronger than a bodybuilder, even when they have a similar cross-sectional area. Um, and beyond that, there might be actual structural changes. Those aren't just neuromuscular changes. Uh, there'll, there'll be differences in pination angle. There'll be differences in the actual uh, myosin isoform expressions or, or the, the fiber type right? differences between, between the two. Uh, they, there's probably differences uh, in, in the sarcoplasmic versus myofibrillar components to where that hypertrophy comes from, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we, we need a lot more data in this area, but I'm at the very least, pretty confident 
uh, that there are going to be different adaptations. You know, if you were to generate the same whole muscle hypertrophy from doing exclusively, you know, blood flow restricted, high rep, low rest period training um, with, with largely concentric biased actions versus doing really, really high, high load training, low reps to produce the same hypertrophy and doing more dominant eccentric actions, you'd get some very different muscle characteristics um, and, and force characteristics. And I think that's neat. Um, we're not at the point where we can really confidently predict those and say when it's best to do one or the other or how to sequence them. But I do think it probably gives some credence to some of the notions that we have in periodization, uh, that there should be distinct blocks where we focus on one thing or the other to some degree. And not that that can't occur, you know, in, in a microcycle, like daily undulating periodization, or that it can't occur in a longer period, like classical Western periodization, or that it can occur in a truncated version of that, like block periodization. There's many ways to get there. We don't know what's best yet, but we can say that you're probably producing different adaptations uh, when you have those very distinct programming modalities. Gotcha. Yeah. One to say, Dr. Han, I am sorry for butchering your name. And two, the Greg Knuckles article you referenced, that's the one that was titled like the bros were probably right, right? Is that the one? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that, I could look it up, but I'm pretty sure that that is the article. And I, I think one thing I really like about Greg is that he updates his uh, his articles as more data comes out. Um, so I could be wrong, but I want to say that he's probably added a bit to that uh, since the latest research has come out. Awesome. Well, listeners, I will link that down in the description within this podcast on the website. Um, that almost wraps up our podcast, Eric. I do want to ask you a few more questions that we do in more of like a rapid fire round. So super quick questions. If you're game for it, I'll shoot away. All right. Number one, on your Iron Culture podcast, who would be the ultimate guest to have? If you could have anyone alive or dead, who would it be? Man, I'm going to say Dave Draper, the the blonde bomber. Um, anyone who's not aware, this this was the uh, the trading partner of of all the classic guys from from the 70s. Um, he won Mister America in '65. Mr. World in 1970, and I want to see Universe in 67. Um, and his philosophies on training and on life, uh, and just sticking with it for the long haul, and everything I talked about in terms of burnout and loving it for the process, uh, is, is just really, really insightful. He's a fantastic writer. Uh, anyone who has not read it, I highly recommend uh, Brother Iron, Sister Steel. It's a, a great book that he wrote in 2011. Amazing. If you could train with anybody, who would it be? Jeez, that's a tough one. I would probably want to train with John Grimmick. Uh, so I would require a time machine, but that would be just really cool to train in an era where uh, bodybuilding and weightlifting were almost the same thing. And to train with a guy who represented uh, the U.S. in the 1936 uh, Olympics for weightlifting, back when the clean and press was still one of the three lifts in weightlifting. And it was also uh, the guy who uh, required the the rule where you can't compete in the Mr. America more than once because they thought he would never stop winning it. Uh, he was the 1940 and 1941 winner. And he was also just huge. Like if you were to calculate his FFMI, his fat-free mass index, it was close to 30, <laughs> especially when he stopped chasing the uh, the weight class uh, restrictions in, in, in weightlifting, trying to get the clean and press a national record. And he let his body weight uh, get up as high as he wanted it for the uh, the off season of his 1941 America debut. Guy was like five eight, and um, I believe 
over 200 pounds on stage in, in 1941. Obviously not shredded, but still appropriate to be in a Speedo. And uh, yeah, the guy could do a backflip. He could do the splits. He could, you know, strict press close to 300 pounds over his head. And he was just uh, huge and symmetrical. And one of the few people to have beaten uh, Steve Reeves, which he did in his return to the stage in the Mr. Universe competition, I think in 47, if I recall correctly. Gotcha. And then favorite strength sport to compete in and why? Oh, that's tough. <laughs> that's a hard one um, because I compete in weightlifting, strongman, bodybuilding, and, and powerlifting. Um, man, so I'm going to be that that guy who just is refusing to give up his mistresses and say that I, I love them all equally but for different reasons. So strongman is awesome because I'm new to it, um, and it is the, it, because it's still kind of the Wild West. There's a very little standardization. The equipment is different every time. The heights you have to do a stone – two are different. The, the, the circumferences change. There's so many variables. Um, it very much feels like uh, anything can happen. Well, you can compete against someone a lot stronger than you, and you may be able to beat them with the right medley of events. I used to work with a gentleman named uh, Jen Lee Shang. Well, I still work with him, but back when he was Singapore's strongest man, uh, he barely had a 400-pound back squat and only a touch over a 500-pound deadlift. Um, so there were some events he could just barely put up, um, but he consistently won world's strongest man because he was so athletic. So he would beat uh, people who came from a powerlifting background who could squat and deadlift a couple hundred pounds more than him. Uh, but he was able to beat them because he was so athletic. He could he could flip tires like you wouldn't believe. Uh, he could he could do carries, loaded carries, just at incredible speeds, and he would always make up ground in that way. So I think it it's a much more interesting sport to watch and participate in. Um, and then powerlifting, I love just because it's just a raw expression of strength and you're just as strong as you are. And coming from a, you know, a bodybuilding background, that objectivity, I really like. Uh, weightlifting, I like it for the same reason. Um, but the cool thing about weightlifting, also coming from a powerlifting background, is that I'm way stronger than I need to be for the level of strength I have on the, uh, the, the competition lifts. You know, I can, I back squatted 495, but my best clean and jerk is only uh, 115 kilos, which is like, you know, 250 pounds. So it's really about figuring out the movement. So it's a really, really heavy skill component. So it feels like, you know, playing chess and it's very frustrating, but also very rewarding. And then bodybuilding is like a transcendent experience where you're, you know, trying to make it through the desert with only, you know, half a liter of water, but a hundred miles to go. And just surviving is, is a, is an emotional process. So I have a different love for each one and I'm probably going to keep doing them all as long as my body allows me to. It's amazing. You had a bad day. You get to the gym. You have a heavy training session. What is your go-to pump-up song? Oh, that's a good question. So if I've had a bad day, if I'm in a bad mood, I probably won't try to force it with something like uh, like, like hard rock or rap. I will probably play funk. So maybe a little Earth, Wind & Fire, James Brown, uh, maybe Wild Cherry if I want to get you know crazy. You know what I'm saying? Uh, maybe some brick house. So some funk always puts me in a good mood. It's really difficult to listen to funk uh, and and not just smile. So that that that's typically my go to when I'm when I'm not in a good mood. Gotcha. Yeah, it's like standing in a completely still room and telling people not to dance when they put it on. Um, exactly. Not going to happen. <laughs> well, I seriously appreciate your time, man. I know I've learned things throughout this podcast, and hopefully our listeners do too. So can you tell the listeners where to find you, where to follow you, and where to get in touch with you if they want to learn more or work with you? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I am the uh, the chief science officer. I act as the consultant to the, the coaches at 3dmusclejourney.com to make sure that they're up to date with the best and the latest of science. Uh, and, and they're the primary coaches these days. I just work with athletes I've worked with for a long time. So if you want to do uh, coaching uh, or if you want to get access to the 3DMJ podcast, the blogs we write, our courses, which many of them are free, check us out at 3dmusclejourney.com. That's the number three, the letter D, and the words musclejourney.com together. From there, you can find links to monthly applications in strength sport, uh, the monthly research review that I do with Dr. Eric Trexler, Dr. Mike Zerdos, and Greg Knuckles. Uh, you can find links to the muscle and strength pyramids, uh, my books that are the guides for nutrition and training for recreational and competitive strength and physique athletes uh, with my co-authors, Andrea Valdez and Andy Morgan. Uh, and then you can find Iron Culture, which I do with Omar Isif on iTunes or Spotify or YouTube. Uh, and yeah, that, that's probably the best way to find all of that content. And then for daily stuff, you can follow me on Instagram at Helms3DMJ. 